We are starting our Sunday seminar series today on creation care, and that series actually falls under a bigger theme that we as a church have for this year, Um, and that's the theme of going with the grain. So going with the grain of, of God, essentially. So we believe that God's created life in such a way that he's ordered things in such a way that if we keep in step with that, life works better. So today we're going to take a look at what going with the grain and caring for creation looks like according to God. So let's pray, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, just help us to stop and breathe in your goodness. Give us eyes to see you this morning. Give us ears to hear from you. And just remove all the distractions, Lord, that we put in front of you. And then give us the courage and the boldness and just stir our hearts to do what you place on our heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, every day that we all wake up, we wake up in the middle of something. Something that's already going on. Something that's been going on for a long time. And you and I, and the creation that we find ourselves in, it's neither accidental nor incidental to that story. And I wonder, have you ever seen the wonder of that story? The wonder of the story that you've been written into? Have you ever seen the wonder in the first of the daylight dancing with the sea below and the sky above? Have you ever seen the wonder of life that's bursting forth with living colour? Have you ever seen the wonder, the awe, the beauty in things when they're rightly related to one another? I think we can all bring to our minds the awe and wonder that those moments where creation's just left us breathless. We've all experienced it. And whether you're religious or not, we all have felt the need to worship something when, we, when we're just breathless because of creation. We feel like there's something so right about it at that moment, that we're part of something bigger, that there's a meaning, that there's a purpose to it all. It just doesn't seem incidental in those moments, does it? But then we see images. We see images like the Pacific Garbage Patch, which is in the northern Pacific Ocean. Now, this, this patch here, this is about twice the size of Germany. And we become completely aware of the brokenness of creation. It feels wrong to our core when we see things like that. There's this undeniable feeling in us all that this is, this is not the way things are meant to be. It feels like that awe that we experience, that that beauty, that that wonder, that it's been vandalized. And just like that, we enter into the hot topic of environmental care. The ecological issues that are in front of us, massive pollution, carbon emissions, destruction of habitat, the extinction of species, the cruelty to animals, deforestation, soil erosion, the way we let plastic cover the ocean like snow. There are ecological crises all around us. Do we see how unsustainable it is? 
do we see the ways in which we need our reefs like we need the trees along the seashore? Do we see the way we're drifting off course? It's a hot topic and people see it from a lot of different angles. It's a hot topic because some people see environmentalism or creation care as a political issue. A political issue that involves all of those crazy left-wing tree-hugger types and, and you've got to be a bit of a hippie to care about it in the first place. And so the question that I want to pose to you today is, does the Christian way of thinking, does our faith, does it get in the way of dealing with the ecological crises? Is it indifferent to it? Or is our faith a resource for caring for creation? Can we have a biblical worldview of creation care? Or do we need to look somewhere else? Like, is Good Friday good for creation, or is it just good for us? Is Resurrection Sunday restorative for creation, or just us? Is the gospel, is the good news, is Jesus good news for creation, or just us? If I'm honest, I think Christianity suffers from a bit of a PR problem um, when it comes to creation care. Because many contemporary gospel outlines, they're framed in a way that are fundamentally human-centered. They concern me, they concern my salvation, and this places me at the center of the story, rather than God, rather than his biggest story, the story of salvation that we've been written into. And it may come as a little bit of a surprise, but the gospel, the good news, is not a message that is just about how I or how we are saved. It's primarily about God and his purposes being fulfilled through Jesus. And yes, of course, my salvation, your salvation, is a massive, massive part to that story. So please do not mishear me on that. I preached about it last week. Whenever I preach about it or speak about it, it brings me to tears. I'm a blubbering mess. So it's a massive part to that story. But it's not the entire story. Does this matter though? Like, am I just being pedantic with this? Am I just nitpicking? I don't think I am. Because it makes a huge, huge difference whether we place humans or God at the center of the gospel. Because how a person understands the story they've been written into shapes how they live it out. If God just exists to serve us and the gospel is just about me getting to heaven, then God becomes a servant of my needs. And that drastically, drastically reduces the scope of his saving activity by focusing only on the salvation of humans. Because here's the thing, the biblical vision has salvation encompassing the entire cosmos. The good news is not simply that God and individual sinners are reconciled, but that humans are reconciled to one another and that the entire created order is, is restored through Jesus. God's mission, it's a cosmic mission. And for that reason, I would argue that rather than creation care being, a, being foremost a political issue, I'd actually argue that it's foremost a biblical issue. 
And rather than being attached to political agendas, it's attached to the biggest story that we've been written into. The story, that God and his, the story of God and his mission to reconcile all things under Christ. Now, I'm not going to say to you that you can't be a really, really passionate environmentalist unless you're a Christian. But I do want to make the point that I think there are no better intellectual, spiritual, or moral resources for having a passion for caring for creation than you can find in Christianity. And here is why. One of the first things the Bible teaches us is that the God of the Bible is the God of creation. Eternal, there at the start, before the beginning of time. And with no point of reference, God spoke to the dark and fleshed out the beginning of time. And as he spoke, he created, and creation was born. In the vapor of his breath, life was born. You can see his heart in everything that he made. The crea- that creation is good is one of the most emphatic points of Genesis 1 to 2. Six times in that narrative, God declares his work to be good. Like a master chef bringing a multi course banquet before his admiring guests, God kisses his fingers with each new delicacy that he brings forth from his creative workshop. And there there are two things among many that we can learn from the affirmation that creation is good for environmental care. The first implication is that a good creation testifies to the God who made it. That is, creation reflects something of the goodness of God, something of his good character, That's why when we see images of the Pacific garbage patch, we recognize that something's been vandalized. Because whenever creation's destroyed or degraded, it spoils the reflection of its maker. So our treatment of the earth reflects our attitude to its maker. And the seriousness to which we take what God has said about it being good The second implication of the goodness of creation for environmental care is that creation is intrinsically good in and of itself. So what do do I mean by that? Creation is good. It's not contingent on our human presence within it. This is what Genesis teaches us. Our ability to observe it, um, because the affirmation that creation was good, it wasn't made by Adam and Eve, but by God himself. And it was good because of divine approval. And what that means is that creation has intrinsic value because it's valued by God. And God values it because he made it and he owns it. So creation does not derive its value from us, but its creator. And accordingly, we need to locate our ecological care, not primarily in the need, supply, value of the earth to us but in the glory-giving value that the earth gives to God. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. And creation brings glory to God through its form and through its function. 
Psalm 104 reveals to us that God created things to serve a purpose, to fill a function. But creation does not merely bring glory to God through function alone. The scriptures reveal that creation brings glory to God through form also. Like, think about it. God could have created just one type of tree to fulfill the functions of trees. He could have created just one type of animal. But as the psalmist declares in Psalm 104, verses 24 to 25, how many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. I think none of us would argue that God is extravagant in his design. Creation reveals that he cares about creativity and beauty, form as well as function. Because when God creates, he does not just ask of creation, does it do its job? But does it bring delight? Creation reflects the beauty and the wonder of God. Just like the art of an artist reflects something of the inner being of an artist. So when we care for creation, when we protect the function and the form of creation, we protect a life and a beauty that testifies to and reflects the glory and grandeur of God. So number one is we care for creation because of the goodness of creation and the glory of God that it reflects. <clears throat> but why, <clears throat> excuse me, here we go. Why else should we care for creation though? Well, God has placed us, his image bearers, in a position of stewardship over creation. You and I, we're made in the image of God. Like just, just let that resonate just a little bit. So what, what does that actually mean? I like to think about, when I think about this, about our roles as God's image bearers, as the relationship between an artist and artworks. Artworks reveal the passions, the concerns, and the interests of the artist. So to be made in the image of God is to liken God to the artist. Thank you. Jeez. Um, and we are those artworks. People are, people are meant to see us And see something of what God's like. His passions, his concerns, his interests. John Piper puts it like this. What would it mean that you created seven billion statutes, artworks of yourself, and put them across the world? It would mean that you wanted people to notice you. It is this type of understanding of being made in the image of God that has... implications for the whole of life. And that includes the way we care for creation. The scriptures reveal that we are to care for creation in such a way that it bears witness to God's passions, concerns, his interests, for, for everything that he has made. And in doing so, we'll glorify him through caring about what he cares about, and he cares about creation. Our care for creation should have this outward focus that's directed towards God. Because as his image bearers, we're to work as he works. And God works to bring glory to himself. 
and to provide for the needs of all that he has created. So how do we as his image bearers do this? We, we do this by working like he works. And the whole way through scripture, God works to create environments where life can flourish. And scripture reveals that as we, his image bearers, that we can create life where environments can flourish through caring for creation, by subduing it and by ruling it. Now, those terms from Genesis there in Genesis 1.28, subduing and ruling, they're kind of terms that if taken the wrong way, could actually lead to the abuse of creation. So what does the word of God mean here? To get a clearer picture, we have to read on in Genesis to chapter 2, verse 15. There we read, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. We get this picture of being God's co-workers here co-workers with a task of subduing. And the word subdue, it carries this idea of bringing something wild and out of control, under control, for the purpose of creating an environment where life can flourish, for all that God has created, this idea of a balanced ecosystem. Now, there's an important caveat that we must add to our subduing that we see in Genesis 2.15. And that is that our subduing of creation is to always be done, as it says at the end there, with care. Not exploiting creation. As care here literally means to watch over, to guard, to keep. It it actually carries, when you look at the original language, it carries this idea of a mother caring for her child. We see this expressed the whole way through the Old Testament law which God legislates such care and protection for creation. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19, we read, When you laid siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. So even in war, battle is done in such a way as to protect trees. <coughs> so that they'll be preserved. And then we have the well-known passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse four, where Paul quotes from, and it says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now, it's probably not a problem a lot of us are gonna have, muzzling an ox. Um, There's maybe one of the laws of God you won't break. Um, Now, but what does that mean in all seriousness? It's talking about how harvested sheaths were spread around. The animal in harness would walk around dragging a heavy wooden sledge with a stone that severed the grain from the stalks. So the ox was basically helping in grain production. Now, the best way you could possibly make sure that you you maximized your profits was to put a muzzle on your ox. Because the ox... If it saw the grain, it ate it. And you don't want to give 3% of your grain to an ox. You want all of it. You want to maximize your profits, and therefore you put a muzzle on it. But God says, no, 
God says, no, you need to share your grain with the animal who is helping you provide it. In fact, you know, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, it says, the righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. So loving animals, being a steward of God's creation with care is to be on God's side of loving all that he has created and keeping it from being exploited by humans to maximize profit. So number one, we care for creation because of the goodness of creation and the glory of God that it reflects. And number two, we care for creation because God's placed us in a position of stewardship over creation. And then thirdly, we're to care for creation because God's redeeming creation. He isn't doing away with it. One of the most, I think, astounding passages in the Bible for environmental theology, it's found in Genesis 9. In Genesis 8 and 9, we have the flood, which is the devastation of creation. But then afterward, after that, God comes to Noah and he says this, Genesis 8, 21 to 22. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And then God goes on and he says, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and with every living creature on the earth. And then he goes even, for, even further than that. And down in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 9, he, he says, my covenant is between me and the earth. So after the flood, God comes and he says, I'm making a covenant with the earth. Now, it's an astounding, astounding statement. Because in the Bible, a covenant relationship was something that God entered into in order to save something. He enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham, with Moses, with David to save them. So for God to say, I'm entering into a covenant relationship with the earth, it's a pretty amazing statement. Why does the earth need to be saved, though? Has the earth sinned? No, the earth hasn't sinned. We have sinned. So what does the earth need to be saved from? Well, it doesn't need to be saved from its own sin. What it is saying in Genesis 8 and 9 is God's committed to the earth. He's committed to all the living creatures. He's committed to saving them from human beings that are going to devastate it. It's an amazing promise. So if we're on God's side and we see human beings ruining the earth, and I know God's made a covenant to save the earth and a covenant with all living things, then I've got to get on God's side and I've got to defend the earth from exploitation. Are you starting to see the biggest story that you have been written into? Think about this. <clears throat> God's plan of salvation has to encompass the whole of creation. Like some of you may be asking why? 
God has to redeem all things. If Satan, if evil is to be defeated, because to suggest that God only redeems souls calls into question God's ability to defeat evil. If God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, evil would have won a great, great victory. Because then evil would have so succeeded in devastating and corrupting the present cosmos, so much so that God would have nothing to do but to blight it out. For God to show his ability to defeat the holistic influence of evil over creation, his redemption has to be holistic. Has to. And when we turn the pages of scripture, this is precisely the hope that we see. We see it all the way through the Old Testament, particularly in books, in, in books like Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel too. It paints a picture of this holistic type of redemption. And when we come to the New Testament, we see the same holistic redemption in view. Colossians chapter 1 provides perhaps one of the clearest descriptions in the New Testament of the holistic salvation as it's won by Christ. Paul reveals that the atoning death of Jesus achieves and guarantees the full restoration of creation. Creation is saved through the cross and it's saved through the resurrection of Jesus. The fact is Jesus came to die on the cross so that someday he could end the decay of creation so that he could end evil, so that he could end sin, so that he could forgive us of our sin and someday end all, all evil without having to end us or creation. He died for us. He died for creation. He died to unite all things under him. He died to bring a completeness and a wholeness to the entire created order. That's why at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we don't have individuals rising out of this material world to go to heaven, <clears throat> to go and live in this disembodied state in the clouds forever, where there's heart players and that sort of thing. <clears throat> we actually have heaven coming down to heal this material world, heaven on earth. which is exciting, is it not? Way more exciting than this disembodied state. So the final resource that Christians have for the care of creation is that God's committed to this material creation, that someday he's actually gonna heal it. It's gonna have no more decay, disease, no more death, and we're gonna live in a material world forever. That is what the Bible says, no other religion says that. In fact, secularism says that the world is here temporarily and then it's going to burn up. Only the Bible says that this world is permanent and God so absolutely loved the cosmos that he gave his son for it. God becomes human and he takes on a material body in Jesus because God loved matter so much that he became part of it. And he became part of it so that he could remake it and we could live in it forever with him. 
So we have to protect, preserve, and care for that which God has made, that which God has entrusted to us, and that which God will redeem and restore. And I want to leave you with these words of C.S. Lewis to think about. C.S. Lewis said it well when he said this. When a Christian is confronted with cancer or anything wrong in nature, and the secular person may say, if you could only see it from another point of view, you'd realize this is just the way things are. But the Christian replies, don't talk such damn nonsense, for Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things things God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God has made. And God insists, and he insists very loudly on our putting those things right again. So you can talk about a moral, intellectual, yeah, intellectual theological resource for caring for creation. And I don't think you can find a stronger one than God's view on it. Really don't. There it is. We are his co-workers, his caretakers. So what do we do? Like God's view on creation care, it should challenge every single one of us in the room. It really should. It should convict us to live differently. Like we can all do better at this. Like I've been so convicted personally through the week, so convicted. And I don't know what that conviction looks like in your life. But I do know this, if our heart is beating with his, then we're going to end up caring about what he cares about. And he cares about creation. We should too. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for all that you have created and breathed life into. Lord, we're sorry for all the times that we haven't protected it, that we haven't preserved preserved it. Lord, just help us to see what it is to be human the way you would have us be human and care for your creation. Help us just to put down our own preferences. Help us to embrace your purposes for life, for caring for creation. Even when those purposes are harder, are costly, are more, take more time and effort. Just help us to be only about you and your mission not about our own little deal.
to stir our hearts, Lord Jesus, to not just hear these words and leave it at that. Working us with your power of your spirit, Lord, to walk out of these doors and start living differently and start caring for your creation differently because of what you've done for it, what you're doing in it, and what you're going to do, Lord. Help us to bring slices of heaven on earth everywhere. In the name that is above every other name, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Amen.